Hello and welcome to the Poet Prophetic Podcast. Here is the next instalment of the Gourmet Gospel, concluding section four. Enjoy. Libelous Labels Now, having just quoted an insidious phrase from the general confession, let's wallow in it some more. When I was a choir boy in England, I and my fellow choristers, along with the entire congregation, dutifully recited the following litany of lament. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things we ought to have done, and we have done those things we ought not to have done, and there is nothing good in us. O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders! On the contrary, there is nothing good in this general confession, both in letter and spirit. It is an affront to what the Bible tells us about our standing with God. Let's break it down. We have erred and strayed from thy ways. Not so. Our ways are by nature God's ways. We have the mind of Christ intent upon what the Spirit desires. We have offended against thy holy laws. Impossible, because there are no holy laws for us to offend against. The law was crucified with Christ, and we are dead to it. And there is nothing good in us. On the contrary, there is nothing bad in us. We are good trees producing good fruit. Miserable offenders. There's nothing miserable about being a child of God, born of his royal line, and it is impossible for us to offend God. We were not made to shuffle, heads bowed in abject self-loathing, before either God or man. Perhaps the revelation that we are 100% at our core, new creations, is so wonderful and revolutionary that our modern-day teachers of the law dare not believe it. See also Pharisees in the church below. They dare not believe that we are in our natures incapable of sin, or even if we were capable of it, that there is no boundary we could cross to trigger it. Sin is put beyond us. Sin is unattainable. Were this truth to be grasped by humanity, the resulting explosion of light, life and love would dispel all shadow from this world. But until now it has not even been grasped by our church establishments. I have a similar objection to the labelling that goes on in 12-step groups. Typically, each participant will introduce themselves by name and then add, I'm an alcoholic, I'm an addict, I'm an overeater, etc. No, you're not. 
I don't care how much booze or drugs you've ingested or injected. Slaves to righteousness have no business labelling themselves as addicts of any kind. What we call ourselves is important in determining how we show up in the world. Why repeat the false dogmas? Nor can any amount of acting out turn you into an addict. The addict died with Christ on the cross. Being a slave to righteousness, and remember we have defined this phrase not as meaning being right or in the right, but rather as being naturally in alignment with the will of God, you cannot be counted among the godless, boastful, proud, abusive, ungrateful, unholy, unforgiving, slanderous, brutal, treacherous, rash or conceited of the last days. Spiritual Adultery Even worse, perhaps, than calling us outright sinners, our preachers add confusion to the condemnation by labelling us saint and sinner. What part of being dead to sin do they not understand? Dead is dead. You can't be partly dead. The old self was crucified with Christ, and Christ did not partly die on the cross. To carry around the phantom of an old me when you are entirely a new creation is a toxic theological cocktail. It amounts, as British preacher Terry Virgo puts it, to spiritual adultery. He bases his analysis on Romans 7 too, where Paul likens law to a woman's marriage vow. By law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Virgo suggests calling the husband Mr. Law. He was a nagging, mean-spirited, sullen fellow, but now that he is dead, so is any obligation she had to him. Paul continues. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. Thus, following a code of prohibitions now, attempts to resurrect a zombie relationship with a ghost, and though Virgo calls it spiritual adultery, spiritual necrophilia might be more apt. The unholy matrimony of saint and sinner spawns a purgatorial limbo of despair, and it is documented in autobiographies of the great saints. John Bunyan described his soul hanging as in a pair of scales. Sometimes up and sometimes down, now in peace and anon in terror. The famed preacher George Whitfield, 1714-1770, also languished under a spirit of bondage that broke down his bodily and mental health, and John Wesley laboured in vain for assurance of acceptance with God. Each was for a season locked up and held prisoner by the law until faith should be revealed, and he could finally testify that Christ means the end of the struggle for righteousness by the law for everyone who believes in him.
In the end, righteousness by law simply doesn't fit. We new creations are as new wine, to quote Christ's analogy. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. Being new wine, we belong in a new wineskin, a new and flexible structure of living, whereby God's will is written in our hearts, so that our will is naturally aligned with His. Try to confine the new wine in the old wineskin of right and wrong definitions, and it will strain against these artificial and meaningless constraints, and finally break out. And that is how we may understand the growing pains of those new wine saints cited above as they wrestled within the ill-fitting straitjacket of law. Rereading Romans Misguided preachers who would conflate saint with sinner, new creation with old, slave to righteousness with slave to sin, frequently rely on a Bible passage in Romans 7. There, writing in the first person, Paul voices the despair of a man sold as a slave to sin, who wants to do good but finds evil is right there with me. When elsewhere Paul is so emphatic that we are dead to sin and slaves to righteousness, what puts him on this violent pendulum swing lurching between good and evil? It can only be law. The very mindset that would calibrate its worthiness by reference to these polarizing notions is a recipe for torment. Paul is calling on us to recognize the bondage, condemnation, despair, frustration, and ultimate futility that befalls a person when looking for righteousness by the removal of sin. In the words of Virgo, this passage demonstrates the law's complete inability to save, justify, or sanctify us. It is there to remind you that the law is utterly bankrupt. If you try to work out your salvation by reference to the law, you will end up in complete turmoil. Immutability Quotes Ordinary riches can be stolen from a man. Real riches cannot. In the treasury house of your soul, there are infinitely precious things that may not be taken from you. Oscar Wilde, The Soul of Man Under Socialism Nothing that has ever happened has made any difference to the one who you are. David Dada As I filled my flask from a secret spring in southern England, I marveled at the water's pure brilliance, the way it glistened in the sunlight, the soothing sound of its flow. What I didn't realize at the time was that this experience would confer on my life a sacred parable. The water flows from the base of a chalk cliff and then spreads out across a wide area. To approach the source requires walking up through the stream. Each step stirs the stream bed to form brief waterborne clouds of sediment. 
These are then swept away with the flow, but all the while, the water source behind the cliff face remains untouched. Reflecting on this joyous pilgrimage later, and on Scripture's likening of the Holy Spirit to water, I realize that our spirit flows in the same way. A person may muddy the water downstream, but none can touch, taint, or muddy the source. Having embraced the notion that you are a slave to righteousness, it is still important to accept the permanence of this arrangement, for it is irreversible. Along with the gift of eternal life comes the gift of immutability, or, if you prefer, untaintability. You are made of incorruptible seed. Nor can anyone or anything prize you from the dimension of love that is your birthright, no matter how big or scary, even you can't remove yourself. Your source remains unassailable. It's similar to the unbendable arm exercise described before. So what will you focus on? Recall Peter's walk on water. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, Tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and, beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me! Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? Peter stepped out in faith and walked. But when he turned his focus to the winds and waves, he became afraid and began to falter. Yet Jesus caught him, and did not abandon him to his weakness. We, too, walk in another dimension now, where we transcend the winds and waves of doubt and fear, and where nothing can impinge on the miraculous in us. We remain intimately connected to, and cannot be separated from, what we love. As Paul put it, For I am convinced that neither death nor life neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, if our concentration should lapse and we begin to sink, yet is love swift to forgive and restore us, nor need we have any concern about being in the company of those who do not share the vision any more than Christ had when he took hold of Peter. All the world's a stage. To further illustrate this idea of walking in another dimension, consider Shakespeare's famous lines from As You Like It. All the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. 
They have their exits and their entrances. What can we extrapolate from this? Consider the actor playing Hamlet. His character enters in Act 1, Scene 2, and exits after Hamlet's death in Act 5, Scene 2. But the actor himself has a simultaneous offstage life that is untouched by the Danish court and its deadly politics. In the same way, our greater life and existence, outliving our exit and preceding our entrance, is untouched by the make-believe, the theatre of this world. When I was a child, I would often engage in discussions with friends about whether there is life after death. What we didn't discuss was life before birth. But if one exists, so must the other. Going by Paul's declaration just quoted, in the realm of love, we are not subject to the world's dimensions of time, neither the present nor the future, or space, neither height nor depth. We are even untouched by that immense super-theatre in which angels and demons contend. The Immutable Mind Our other dimensionality, meanwhile, renders immaterial those thoughts that pose as threatening, harmful or inhibiting influences. Others may cite their variants of law, presuming to hand you again the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. But their knowledge cannot taint your unknowledge or innocence. Going back to the unbendable arm exercise, attempted intrusions into your thoughts are no more than impotent attempts to bend your arm, or as arrows made of nothing but vapour, or, to borrow an idea from Shakespeare's The Tempest, as knives trying to stab the air or wound water. These things do not operate in the realm we occupy. It is as if our mind is a radio receiver tuned to the frequency of truth. Other ideas and other frequencies are out there broadcasting, but they find no reception in us. Alternatively, to quote Christ's own comparison, we may dismiss legalistic ideas as contaminated food purged from the system in the form of poo. Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean, for it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body? and the Bible provides plenty more intellectual armour in this regard. We have the mind of Christ, and nothing anyone says can make that less so. We are as good trees from which only good fruit can grow. We are made of incorruptible seed, and our spirit, which alone knows our thoughts, is independent. The unbendable arm exercise imagines looking at a point of light and light is the analogy used by renowned Christian thinker Oswald Chambers, 1874 to 1917, in illustrating the same principle. A sheet of white paper can be soiled, a sunbeam cannot be soiled, and God keeps his saints like light. Thus, where law is espoused, or even enforced, Yet do we remain free. Christ's burden is easy, so we never carry the mental burdens of others.
family curses are already broken. Nor can a child of light be one jot dimmed by ancestral influences. Referring to Old Testament curses passed down through families, Christians pray fervently for Jesus to break the bonds between a believer and the sins of the forefathers. But all curses are merely pronouncements of a law that has already been crucified. Christ broke all generational curses for all time when he became a curse for us. What part of Christ disarmed the powers and authorities, triumphing over them by the cross, do Christians not understand? Our prayers cannot improve on this achievement. Even in the Old Testament, God could not resist his own merciful impulses in likening undeserved curses to a fluttering sparrow or a darting swallow that will not come to rest. Thus, in Paul's list of things that cannot separate us from the love of God, which includes neither the present nor the future, I would add, nor the past. You've been listening to my audiobook recording of The Gourmet Gospel, and I'll continue releasing the book in installments over the coming months. The ebook is currently free at most retailers, and you can find the links to get your copy by going to my website, poetprofit.com, where profit's spelt P-R-O-P-H-E-T. Until next week, this has been Abdiel Leroy. <laughs>